Good afternoon. My name is Debbie, and I'll be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the December Expert Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number 1 on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. Thank you. Mr. Jerry Chia, please go ahead. Well, this time I'd like to thank everybody for standing by and welcome to our webcast, The Auxiliary Techniques for AP Correction with Invisalign. During this presentation today, of course, you'll be in a listen-only mode. We will have a Q&A session at the end of our call using the questions submitted through the Q&A feature. You'll find the Q&A in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. Just click on the question mark icon, type in your question, and click Submit. At any time today, if you have any WebEx technical issues, please dial our tech support at 866-229-3239. Again, that's 866-229-3239. At this time, I'd like to turn the call over to David Molman. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert program, Auxiliary Techniques for AP Correction with Invisalign with Dr. Sam Dar. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you will receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificates at the conclusion of Dr. Dar's presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor site account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you are able to listen to today's program via the webcast as well as dialing in via telephone. At the end of Dr. Dar's presentation, those of you who have dialed in by phone will be able to ask both live and text questions, and those of you listening via the webcast may only ask questions via text. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today at AlignTechInstitute.com where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Sam Dar. Dr. Sam Dar reached the level of Invisalign Elite Advantage Provider in 2007 and has been treating Invisalign patients in his Vancouver, British Columbia practice since 2000. He is British Columbia's first elite premier provider and a bilingual native of Montreal. Dr. Dar is a member of the American and Canadian Association of Orthodontists and a fellow of the World Federation of Orthodontists. He received his DDS from McGill University with distinction in 1994 and a master's degree with a specialty in orthodontics from the University de Montreal, where he also taught undergraduate orthodontics. So without further ado, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Sam Dar. Dr. Dar, you now have the floor. Thank you, David. Good morning, everyone, or good day, everyone. Um, today's session will be we'll be talking about um, auxiliary use with um, Invisalign for anterior posterior correction. Um, just to give you um, a quick idea about your speaker first, um, I just want to make sure that we're moving forward. Thank you. Um, and I just want to mention that the statements, opinions expressed in this program basically um, are those of the speaker. These are my, I'm sharing with you today my experiences with the Invisalign system. So um, like David had mentioned earlier, I have a, a practice in downtown Vancouver, which is uh, Invisalign, uh, limited to Invisalign with a couple other satellite practices. Today's session, we will be limiting it to class two and class three treatment with the help of, of auxiliaries 
um, and elastics. This discussion is limited to non-surgical uh, treatment. Uh, we had previously done, I believe, last August um, a session on August 20th. As a matter of fact, we've done a session on Ask the Experts whereby we discussed purely surgical orthodontic treatment for class 2, class 3 correction. Um, so you can refer to that. It is on alignedtechinstitute.com. So starting with class 2 treatment, I wanted to start with Alice's case. Um, you might have seen this case at an earlier, a uh, couple of years ago, we've done an Ask the Expert as well. Um, and we want to go in, in a bit more detail today looking at Alice's case. Um, her chief concern was overbite, basically, in quotation. She was referring to the overjet. She's, uh, she's got a class 2 div 1 with 5 millimeters overjet. And she's got the upper first bicuspid and a crossbite. And she did complain about the lip strain. She, uh, she mentioned that she has to force her lips um, to, to seal them um, when she's resting. So the bimaxillary protrusion was an issue as well. So looking at the um, initial photos, you can see her sitting in a half a cusp class two at this point, looking from the buckle shots. So our treatment, um, looking at the panoramic as well, our treatment was to distalize on both sides, um, backing up the anchorage with class two elastics. This case was treated about four or five years ago. Um, the number of aligners, we have 36 upper load aligners and seven lower aligners. We have done the initial clint check, absolutely no interproximal reduction at this point. It was pure distalization using class two elastics. Once we were done and the teeth were sitting in a nice class one relationship, the patient felt that the bimax protrusion can improve a bit more. So we went back and did some interproximal reduction um, in the upper four to four uh, and on the lower, <coughs> excuse me, the lower four to four as well, simply to retract uh, the upper anteriors and the lower anteriors to reduce the bimaxillary protrusion. Total treatment time with the refinement uh, was a year and seven months. And you notice looking at the x-ray that the um, eights were impacted. Um, we had the patient remove, we had the oral surgeon remove the wisdom teeth um, soon after taking the impression. What I routinely do is take upper and lower impressions first then send the patient to have the upper wisdom teeth extracted. I'll leave the lower wisdom teeth extraction to the discretion of the dentist or uh, the oral surgeon. The reason for that is as we're distalizing in the upper arch, I can use that space in the maxillary to porosity area. And I'd like to take the impressions prior to the extraction simply because there's no swelling. Patients can open wide enough, and it, takes the, it makes the extraction, uh, the impression process a lot easier on the patient. Um, the second reason for that, the more recent the extraction, um, the more favorable I find the distalization will be on the upper second bicuspid. And the time from the time we send the impressions into aligned technology and by the time we get them back, that on average takes six to eight weeks, depending on how fast I can get onto the ClinCheck. And that's perfect time to allow the upper wisdom teeth to be extracted and allow the healing process. Now, I just want to take a look at the ClinCheck. Um, the, uh, if you notice, the attachment placement has, I've modified that since um, we, I set up the ClinCheck. You will notice individual to distalization at this point. Once the D8s are extracted, I will go back and distalize the sevens first. Um, so the sevens are usually distalized um, about two-thirds of the way before I request distalization of the six, the five, the four, and so on. Um, with individual distalization, I find I can control the anchorage 
um, so much more. And I back it up with class two elastics, and I will be talking about class two elastics in a moment. So you notice how um, teeth are being distalized individually, and when we get to the anterior, then we'll do uh, en masse distalization at that point. Now looking at it from the occlusal view, and give me a second, looking at the from the occlusal view, you get a better appreciation. And as we're distalizing, this is the best time to either labialize or lingualize the posterior teeth and maybe even request uh, rotation mesial out on the upper sixes at the same time. Uh, and again, going back into the photos, as we're distalizing, um, so the movement is done in 3D um, at the same time. So as I'm distalizing the sixes, for instance, I will rotate the mesial out and maybe either expand or constrict to coordinate with the lower arch at the same time. Moving forward, um, and here are the notes. Um, what would a typical class two distalization case would be? I would request, and these would be similar to the notes I would send to the technician. Sequential distalization, if I have to elaborate and explain, I'll simply be please distalize one tooth at a time. When it comes to the anterior region, I will distalize the upper canines first, and then I will distalize uh, the upper anteriors or retrocline um, the upper anteriors on mass. At this point, in order uh, to maintain a proper crown torque, I would request to apply buccal crown torque. Um, and I will add in there, apply lingual root torque on the upper anteriors as I'm retracting. Um, the reason for that is I want to make sure that those upper anteriors are not simply being dumped in, so to speak, lingually. So I'd actually request buccal crown torque and lingual root torque on the upper anteriors as I start distalizing from the canine on. At this point, power ridges are wonderful for that. You get less complaints from the patients. Um, just make sure you mention to your patients that these power ridges may appear to some of these patients as a defect in the aligner. They may be a little rough um, in that region. So explain to them that it is not uh, a defect in the aligner, and these are simply built into the aligner, and they serve a purpose. You may choose to give them some uh, wax, just regular ortho wax, to apply in that region for the first one or two aligners. Beyond that, they'll get used to it comfortably. As I'm distalizing, I like to use vertical rectangular attachments. Again, rule of thumb on upper sixes, upper fours, and upper threes. If the sixes or the fours have crowns, I like to place the attachment on the, on the tooth adjacent to them. So it can simply be on the upper sevens, upper fives, and upper three, so on and so forth. But I like to limit uh, the number of attachments to three per quadrant. Um, again, now that we're using these precision cut elastic hooks on the aligners, just remember that you cannot use, you cannot request optimized attachments on the upper threes uh, with the new Invisalign G3. So you want to make sure you request vertical attachments on the upper canines if you are requesting these elastic hooks. Canines are usually long enough occlusal gingivally that you will not need to worry about a three or a four millimeter attachment on the canine. And I'm always asked about starting class two elastics. I like to start those at around a liner eight. Again, I will make exceptions. If a patient is flying in from out of town, we may place attachments and start elastics 
as if all line are one. Uh, but all given all things being equal, I'd rather start at a liner eight. The reason for that is I'd like to have the patient wear a liner one and two, just get used to the aligners first, place the attachments, and they give five aligners at that time, have the patients get used to the attachments first. And as of a liner eight, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll go into uh, starting class two elastics. Now remember, if you do place the precision cuts Early on, nothing says that you actually have to start elastics when the precision cuts are incorporated into the aligners. In other words, if you do request them as of aligner 7 and patients cannot show up until aligner 8, no big deal. You can start elastics at that point. Um, and the other thing I like to do is stop class 2 elastics at least five aligners before last. The reason for that is I want to make sure that we're not correcting the class 2 by patient positioning the mandible forward. If there is any rebound effect, um, five aligners, that usually gives us about 10 weeks, and that's enough time to allow us to see and monitor uh, the mandibular positioning at that point. Again, we're distalizing the teeth individually, and the class 2 elastics are there to help us reinforce anchors, but it may, in certain instances, force the patient to, to position the jaw forward. So just to be on the safe side, I will stop the elastics a little bit sooner. And what's wonderful about um, the new G3 now, we have these passive aligners. And they usually in the lower arch, as most of the distalization, most of the work being done on the upper arch, these passive aligners on the lower are great to splint the lower arch. Um, it used to be a struggle with the patients explaining to them, for instance, in this case, whereby we finish at aligner 7 and we have 30-odd aligners on the upper arch, and then explaining to the patient, you cannot wear the elastics without wearing the lower aligner, and that sometimes skipped their mind. So this will make patient management a lot easier. Make sure that the elastics are worn only when the aligners are in the mouth, and having these passive aligners and the opposite arch will just make the explanation a lot easier to the patient. Now, following through here at aligner 15, um, you can see where the buttons are bonded on the mesial buckle of the lower anteriors. Um, and you can see spacing, interproximal spacing in the, inter, in the premolar region um, as we, as we uh, start distalizing. And in this case, it was a couple of millimeter of distalization, two to three uh, millimeter dist clinical distalization at this point. And if we move forward from the buckle shot, um, you can see again where the food is being trapped, and I apologize for that. That is where the interproximal space um, is occurring. But if you're looking at the molars, in the buckle shot, you can see where the molars are sitting nicely in a class one relationship. We haven't at this point distalized the canine into the class one relationship just yet. Um, class two elastics, and this was obviously prior to the precision cuts. You can see how I modified the upper and the lower aligners, bonded aesthetic plastic buttons on the upper canines, metal buttons on the lowers, um, and have patients wear these elastics full times as of a liner 7, 8 or so. And here we are with the final results. Um, the canines are sitting nicely in a class 1 relationship. The midline is on. Um, overjet is reduced to ideal, and everything's sitting nicely in a class 1 relationship at this point. And what I wanted to do is, during the retention phase, uh, which was 15 months um, after the end of the treatment, uh, we took photos just to follow through, and you notice the canine relationship on the left-hand side has actually settled a little bit better, as a matter of fact. So here we're comparing the initial class two relationship, um, the final basically a D-band, 
and, and one year post-treatment, basically one year into retention, and you can see how the results remain stable at this point. Initial and final, there's less lip strain. Um, she's happy, she's comfortable with the, with, the, with the smile as well. We coordinated the upper and the lower arch. So by fixing the occlusion, obviously, we improved the aesthetics at the same time. Um, and what I wanted to do early on, I wanted to see if we were actually getting distalization radiographically or if at least we can measure it radiographically, knowing quite well that the number I will get from the radiographic distalization may not be accurate clinically, but that number was irrelevant. So what I did is um, I dropped the perpendicular from Frankfurt horizontal and I measured the distance, linear distance, from that perpendicular to the most distal aspect of that second molar. And in here, I measured about one and a half millimeter, again, radiographic distalization. I presume clinical distalization was a little bit more than that. And I've, I've done that on about a dozen patients at one point, and I've always had a, a positive number. But what I wanted to do is take it a step further, um, and we send it to an independent uh, company to trace these. I just wanted to get the bias out of there completely. And even on the, on the CEPH tracing, you can notice the overjet region, pretreatment, and how there's coupling of the anterior teeth post-treatment. And what we did is we did some superimposition, ANSPNS, and we, we traced it, and we superimposed. You'll notice the red... Uh, color is the final, and you can see how we were able to measure the distalization of the molars and the anterior as teeth as well. And in, in, in this uh, tracing, what, what I wanted to see as well is I wanted to make sure that we weren't dumping the upper anteriors lingually, and we were actually getting um, distalization of the, the roots in the upper anterior region as well. And that clearly demonstrates that. And what we did is we, we did a second superimposition, this time on, on Nasiard point. And again, you will notice the distalization of both the upper and the uh, upper posterior and anterior teeth as well, the red being the final position of the teeth, black being the initial position of the teeth. Again, both anterior and posterior teeth with distalization. And the last step, um, as you know, we leveled that curve SP in the lower arch. So we did superimposition on the mandible as well, and you can see by leveling that curve SP in the lower, we have um, the lower sixes traced with the mesial up um, at the end where the, uh, with the final red color, and you can see where the lower anteriors, we had some proclination of the lower anteriors as well. We had, as we level that curve SP, we do need to create some space and proclination of the lower anterior to within a millimeter or so just to help us level that curve SP and create some space to level it. So at this point, I'd just like to touch up on class two elastic protocol and maybe the thinking behind it and, and, and why I, I've sort of my class two uh, elastic protocol has evolved over the year. And if you look at this, um, at these photos right here, you will notice on the upper left-hand side, the upper left canine, you will notice uh, a mesial out rotation on the canine. So what I used to do is bond buttons on the upper threes and lower sixes, and not frequently, but enough cases, um, I've noticed in enough cases that we get that mesial out rotation on the upper canine occasionally. And what I used to do is stop class two elastics for a couple of aligners, um, have the patient continue wearing the aligners without the elastics, and more often than not, that, that canine will rotate back mesial in. And because this is a relapse movement, you don't have to work very hard at it. 
But I wanted to avoid that completely. So because of that, what I started doing is uh, placing cuts in the upper aligner. And um, early on, as a matter of fact, I placed cuts on the lower aligners. But what I found was happening at that point is the lower aligner was being dislodged because of the elastic force. Um, so I went back into bonding buttons on the lower sixes, on the mesial buckle of the lower sixes, and I kept using uh, a slit in the aligner. So now with these new precision cut aligners, I don't have to make the cuts myself. Um, and as you notice here, because of that mesial out rotation, I've been using the, the slits in the aligner when I'm distalizing to reinforce anchorage. I usually like to place it distal to the, uh, I'm sorry, adjacent to the canine. There are times where I may place it adjacent to the lateral incisor, but I find that the elastic has to go around the corner um, of the art form, and that can impinge on the gum or on the aligner. So it's not something I'd like to do. So I like to place those cuts adjacent to the canines or slightly distal to the canine, rarely ever mesial to the canine. Um, and we talked early on about placing cuts in the aligners, on the upper aligner, bonded buttons on the lower, but I do have one exception, and that is class two, division two cases. And again, in these cases, and I find from experience that when a patient has a class two, div two, and we're distalizing, um, that elastic may actually, um, will have a vector of force that will dislodge the aligner, the aligner in the upper anterior region. So a patient comes back after five or 10 aligners, wearing elastics, you will notice a space between the aligner and the upper, anti, uh, the upper incisors. And I found, again, we'll have to go back and ask the patient to use chewies and stop using elastics, and sure enough, that space disappears. And as you can see on this photo, the class two elastic vector is actually quite similar to the path of insertion and removal of the aligner. So in only in class two, diff two cases, I started bonding buttons in the up, on the upper canines and obviously maintained the buttons on the mesobuckle of the lower molars. Again, the reason for that is now the force is applied straight into the, into the canine, which is being splinted by the aligner, so the aligner is not dislodging anymore. Um, again, on the lower buttons, I'll, I'll, I'll place um, the buttons on the mesial buckle to prevent a mesial in rotation. And that button is a somewhat uncomfortable for the patient, but it's a great reminder for the patient to wear the elastics. As soon as the elastics are worn on that button, that usually tends to push the cheek away, and, and that will make, uh, will make it a lot more comfortable for the patient. So you do want to nudge them. You do want them to have... Um, a, a reminder in there, because if you have slits on both upper and lower aligners, sometimes patients can go for days and they won't even remember to wear the elastics. And one last point, I find now that the arches are being splinted nicely. I tend to place my buttons on the sevens a bit more frequently than I do on the sixes, um, and I'm, I'm going to touch up on that in a second. Um, I hope everybody can see this. We, I, I I reviewed uh, this book, which was written about 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember, uh, by Dr. Michelle Langlade. And um, in it, there's a nice explanation about class two elastics. The doctor goes into details um, in here. So in this incentric occlusion, um, when patients are wearing class two elastics, there's about a 20-degree um, angle. And uh, the, the author actually um, calculated the force on 100-gram elastic force, that the horizontal component will be about 93 grams of force. Um, now, as the patient 
opens up a bit wider as they yawn or they speak, uh, that 100-gram force will actually give you 139.9 or almost 140 grams of force simply because we're stretching the elastic at this point. But what you also notice is that the vertical component also increases at the same time. So if the patients open up 25 millimeters, at this point, again, the horizontal force um, increases to almost 150 grams, but the, the, the vertical force also increases at the same time. So as patients open during the day, as they function, they eat, they yawn, um, that force will increase. The horizontal component of the force will increase, but so will the uh, vertical as well. Um, so the, uh, the author came up with the conclusion that during the day, intermaxillary elastics have a vertical component of extrusion that is much more significant than the horizontal, simply because the patient is functioning during the day, opening and closing. Um, and at nighttime, um, intermaxillary elastics, the patients are relaxed. Um, the intermaxillary elastics have an equivalent vertical and horizontal component. Um, and this is one of the reasons why if my patients are really uh, uh, compliant patients start wearing their elastics as of a liner seven, and as we're done with the uh, with the distalization six nine months into it, sometimes they come back and say, you know, we're getting tired of wearing these elastics, or we, we they lost some of their energy. I may believe it or not negotiate with them sometimes and say, you know, you can skip during the day as soon as you get home wear your elastics until the next morning because I'm relying on nighttime wear, whereby intermaxillary elastics have an equivalent vertical and horizontal component. So I have less of a vertical component at that point. So moving forward into precision cuts, now these, these cuts are already built in the, into the aligners. Um, I was lucky enough to try the pilot study on these elastic hooks and I got some feedback from my patients. And basically what we did is we went through a series of aligners whereby I modified the aligners myself and then we gave them these uh, precision uh, cuts in the aligners and asked, them, asked the patients if they felt any difference uh, simply from, from uh, noticing any rubbing on the inside of the cheek or anything. Patients couldn't, could barely tell the difference between one or the other. So I was, I was quite happy to know that um, it, it doesn't make a difference from patient comfort point of view. The only thing I notice is, and patient um, explained that it's actually a little bit easier to engage the elastics while the aligner is being worn with the new precision cuts. Again, one last reminder, you cannot add any optimized attachments on the bicuspid bit if you are using precision cuts or uh, hooks on the canines, on the upper canines. And you can place them on the bicuspids as well if you choose to go one tooth further for any reason. And these button cut out on the lower mesial, again, I sometimes do place them on the sevens. Uh, but for now, I've been, I've been, uh, I started using them on the sixes and quite just recently I've been placing them a lot more frequently on the seven because I get more of a horizontal component to the force the further distal we go in the lower arch. Now these precision cuts, again, um, what they do is they are not, the elastics are not distalizing the teeth. All they're doing is they're reinforcing anchorage. If you look at this um, diagram, uh, what we're doing when we're distalizing without elastics, we're using reciprocal anchorage. We're distalizing the molars and we're pitting them, pitting them against the rest of the arch. So we may get um, uh, a reaction whereby we, we lose some of that anchorage and we may get some flaring of the upper anteriors. Theoretical as this may be, 
um, by reinforcing the anchorage with the elastics, now we're not we're preventing the upper anteriors from flaring forward, which means that force, all of the distalization force is being translated to the molars, and we get um, a lot more molar distalization at this point. So what we're simply doing is simply reinforcing the anchorage and preventing the upper anteriors from flaring forward, and that allows all the force to be translated to the upper molars, whereby distalizing them completely. Now we're building the distalization right into the aligner. The aligners are distalizing the teeth, and the elastics are simply reinforcing the anchorage and helping with the distalization. And these passive aligners, again, they're, they're, they're great in terms of, of patient management, but again, you want to explain to the patient that um, these aligners help splint the arch so we're not getting flaring, we're not getting extrusion of the lower molars, we're not getting flaring of the lower anteriors. So the, these passive aligners help splint and at the same time will make the patient go almost on autopilot. So at this point, um, instead of giving um, 30 aligners on top and 10 on the, on, the, on the lower arch, you can simply match the number of upper and lower aligners so patients can go on autopilot, not worry about it. They wear the same number of upper and lower aligners. So it serves a dual purpose at this point. So let's look at another case, which was a, a little bit more advanced. Um, Alfred is 20 years old, comes in with this type of malocclusion. Um, he's sitting class two on both sides. Um, requires a little bit more distalization on the left-hand side, but some distalization on the right-hand side as well, some crowding. And obviously, we need more um, alignment and distalization in the upper arch than we do on the lower arch. And this is how we finished Alfred's case. Um, with the midlines are on, the canine sitting nice. The canine sitting in a nice class one relationship. So, looking at the superimposition of the upper occlusals, um, you can notice spaces opening up as we do individual tooth distalization or sequential distalization. And you'll notice the horizontal attachments um, on the upper anteriors were simply placed in there to control. To or to apply lingual root torque movement at this point. Again, with these with the new power ridges, these will not be these won't be necessary anymore. What I'd like to do is just play it again one more time with the distalization, and you can see spaces opening up quite nicely in the premolar region. And there we go. We distalize the canine, and then the upper anteriors follow. And just from a patient management point of view, I always want to explain to the patient that those upper anteriors will be the last teeth to align. In other words, if the treatment is a year or a year and a half, the first nine months or so, patients are not going to notice any improvement um, in the upper anterior teeth. Um, However, I may make some exceptions. If there's a wedding coming up within six months or any major events, I may align them somewhat and explain to the patient that we will improve the alignment somewhat, um, but the final result will not, the nice results will not occur till the end. Um, one of, probably one of the other things I mentioned to my patient is spaces will open up in between your, your back teeth, food will get caught, but will make it a bit easier for you to floss. And one last thing, your bite will get worse before it gets better. And this is becoming a lot more common that I included it in my uh, instructions to the patient. We give him a printout um, as to what to expect during treatment. And now we added that point, your bite will get worse before it gets better as they have premature contact as we're distalizing the, the posterior teeth. I'm looking at Alfred's case um, before and after. And going in um, and looking at the uh, the ClinCheck, just give me a sec as this is loading, and here we go. 
So as we're distalizing, you notice the attachment on the seven, on the five, and on the three. So on every other tooth, and then the upper anterior attachments come on at a later stage. There was no point in placing the attachments on the upper anteriors early on. So I did not request having those attachments placed until the upper incisors start moving. Playing it again, distalizing attachments on the sevens, then the five, then the threes, and then the attachments come on when the anterior teeth start moving. We backed it up with class two elastics. And moving forward, and the class two elastics started at around a liner seven or eight. Now let's look at it from the buckle view. Again, distalization. The lower attachments on the lower four horizontal attachments, uh, these were great for the retention of the aligner. I felt that the lower clinical uh, crowns were somewhat shorter, and these attachments simply helped with the retention of the aligner. Again, distalization, individual distalization. The canines come back, creating space for the upper anteriors. Attachments come on to apply, uh, to have some extrusion, but apply uh, lingual root torque on the anteriors. And these were actually, I copied and pasted these notes from my instructions to the technician. Um, word for word, the way you see them is expand arch forms and develop arches. Um, distalize upper posteriors into a class one. Um, I had explained to them that the AIDS will be extracted. Even though they were not erupted, I just want the technician to know that the distalization of the seven will occur because the wisdom teeth were removed at that point. And place attachments on the seven, the five, and the three. A vertical rectangular. At that time, I used to bevel them on the occlusal side. At this point, I will not give any uh, specific instructions as to how to bevel, simply vertical attachments on these teeth. No other upper attachments. I did not want to overwhelm the aligners and or the patients with these attachments. I find once you get more than six attachments per arch, patients start complaining. Retention of the aligner might be a little too much. Um, some of our patients are in their 60s and 70s, and their manual dexterity may not be as good as you would see with a, with a 20 or a 30-year-old. So what we'll do is we'll limit the attachments whenever possible to six per aligner. Having said that, if for any reason I need to place more than six, I'd like to have six at a time. In other words, I will place attachments on the seven or the six, distalize them, and once these molars are sitting in a nice class one relationship, at that point I may request to have the attachments removed from the clenching and then other attachments placed at the same time. So what would happen is the patient will hopefully have six attachments at a time. Um, and attachments on lower fours only. Again, at that point, I gave clear instructions as to where I wanted the attachments on the lowers um, and, and keep out of occlusion. Obviously, at this point, you know, uh, patients know with a new G3, technicians know to keep them out of occlusion. Um, incidentally, for this patient, we had 50 upper aligners and 20 lowers. So what I did at that point in Alfred's case is I had the patient switch the aligners for, um, every two weeks in the upper arch, but every four weeks in the lower arch, so my 20 lower aligners lasted um, or matched 40 aligners in the upper arch. And then at the end, what I did is I, gave, I made an in-office suck-down Essex retainer to splint the lower arch as they're wearing the elastics. We, we didn't need any refinements. Now, when I got the clint check bag, these are the comments I gave the second time around. 
lower teeth movement is too fast, I necessarily please slow down and extend number of aligners to 20. If I'm not mistaken, I got about 12 aligners on the lower arch or 13 aligners. I simply uh, requested to extend the number of aligners. At this point with today's G3, I probably wouldn't need to do that. I simply wanted to extend the number of aligners so I can get as many aligners as I can to splint the lower arch for the class two elastics. Now you don't need to do that. You can simply uh, request passive aligners. So. And there was one tooth um, on the lower left-hand side. Um, I noticed that when I got it back, I didn't have a positive occlusal contact with the opposing teeth. So I simply explained to them, to the technician, to establish a positive occlusal contact. But it's really important that you explain to the technician how you want it established. So I explained it's by extruding the mesial up and allowing mesial root tip, and that will also allow me to level the marginal ridges as well. So again, establish positive occlusal contact, but please explain to the technician how you wanted that contact to be established. And aligner 28, at that point I added the horizontal rectangular attachments on the upper anteriors. Teeth number 1, 1, and 2, 1, these are the Canadian terms for teeth number 8 and 9, basically. Um, and the reason why I held off until aligner 28, because I didn't find any reason for those. And if usually we get any complaints from patients from an aesthetic point of view, it's usually because of the attachments on the upper anteriors. Um, so I delayed them as much as I can. Um, just to make the patient happy. And, and that was it for class two uh, treatment. Again, just to review quickly, start elastics at aligner seven or eight, um, and stop the elastics about five aligners before last. Make sure the patients wear the aligners on the lower arch as you're wearing the class two elastics, because some of them may take it upon themselves to simply wear the aligners at nighttime only, thinking that we're only maintaining the teeth in that position, so explain to them that the elastics um, have to be worn only when the aligners are being worn in the opposite arch. Um, again, sequential distalization. Do I still use the class, the, the sort of class two elastics jump? Yes, I do. If that discrepancy, if the class two is within a millimeter or so, even up to two millimeter on a growing child, um, on a growing where we have growth on our side, I may actually accept a class two elastic jump into the ClinCheck if if the discrepancy is one, maybe two millimeter um, on a growing child. But otherwise, I still request sequential distalization. Um, on all the teeth, backing it up with class two elastics. Now moving forward into class three treatment, um, Jeff, let me share with you Jeff's case, 26 years old, comes in. And you can notice um, he's a heavy bruxer. He's worn down uh, his posterior teeth almost flat. He has no cusps um, on the lower sixes. And he's, you notice from the anterior view, he's in a cross bite um, or edge to edge in the um, upper arch completely. So he wanted no surgery, we had requested surgery, or at least he didn't want surgery at the time, he would be willing to consider it in the future, um, and he's a heavy bruxer obviously, and he wanted no braces. Now, looking at his ClinCheck, um, there's certain things that I typically do for class three patients, um, and here we are, we have some lower incisor, um, lower IPR, and I go as far back as the five, sometimes the six as well. I just want to mention that I rarely ever, if at all, distalize lower sevens. I find the ascending ramus and the mandible will not allow distalization of the sevens. And even if it does occur, I'm not sure if I'm going to maintain it. So if I do need to distalize on the lower arch for any reason, I will maintain the lower, 
lower molar where it is the sevens, and then I'll, I may do some interproximal reduction starting on the mesial um, of the six, moving forward 0.5 millimeters, and then at that point I can distalize the six, the five, the four, and so on. And that distalization, again, is simply to close the IPR space that we created, 0.5 millimeter. By the time you get to the canine, you can easily gain almost two millimeters on each side. Again, playing it again, you will notice as we're, we're, we're doing the IPR on the lower anteriors, you want to make sure that those lower anteriors are not dumped in lingually as well. So I may go in, now I don't routinely request it, but if I find that my technician did not give me a lingual root torque, I will go in and request lingual root torque on the lower anteriors simply to prevent um, the buckle, uh, the roots uh, from fenestrating through the buccal plate in the lower anterior region. Um, and I'll request some anterior intrusion as well. So let's take a look, take a second look from the anterior view. Again, intrusion of the lower anteriors, um, lingual root torque on the lower anteriors, and interproximal reduction. Um, I may, in certain cases, uh, elect to do a lower incisor extraction as well. Um, but I will always do my first ClinCheck setup with interproximal reduction first. Again, playing this again. Extrusion, all these horizontal attachments are simply for extrusion of the upper anteriors as well. And I did back it up with class three elastics. And again, these are my notes. You'll see the ClinCheck notes, my notes to the technician coordinate the arches because we noticed the, the constriction in the upper arch. So we wanted to expand the upper arch. And to help along, I, I request constriction of the lower arch as well. And obviously, constricting the lower arch may require some space. So, But we've already uh, requested some interproximal reduction on the lower arch, so that helps. I still go in with a polishing strip between the molars as I'm constricting the lower arch between the lower molars just to loosen that contact a bit and to allow the lower molars to tilt lingually, so to speak, simply to help with the coordination between the upper and the lower arch. And I request, I requested, at least in this case, IPR on the lower three to three when straight line access was allowed and there was no overlap. Again, that's one of the other advantages of the new Invisalign G3. Um, that goes without saying. You don't have to request it anymore. Um, they will allow a straight line access when doing the IPR, which means the IPR will delete. And again, apply lingual root torque on the lower two to two as you retract and close the spaces. You don't want to take the lower anteriors and dump them in. Um, most, most of our class three patients will have a tendency to have the lower anteriors dumped lingually anyway, so you don't want to exacerbate that. You want to make sure that you get some form of translation and requesting lingual root torque. I usually like to start, um, again, rule of thumb, there's always exceptions. I like to start elastic wear either the day I do the IPR or after I did the IPR. I'm just concerned that that overlap in the lower anterior while wearing class three elastic might just um, overlap, create worse crowding. Um, so what I'll do is I'll wait until the IPR is done and then start with the class three elastics. For my class three patients, I tend to place buttons on both upper sixes and lower threes as opposed to um, doing cuts in the aligners. Um, again, simply because I don't want the elastics to dislodge the lower aligners, um, I don't want to increase, necessarily increase 
the, the number of attachments to increase retention of the lower aligner. So I place buttons on the upper sixes and lower threes. And these are, not in an, an, these are usually not an aesthetic concern to the patient as even when they smile, you rarely see um, the gingival third of the lower canines anyways. And again, the passive aligners are wonderful to splint both arches while wearing the elastics. Um, in this case, we had 28 upper aligners, 23 lower, so they weren't that far off. Again, in today's G3, you probably request some passive aligners so you can match both the upper and the lower aligners. And we had to go in and do some refinement to fine-tune the bite a little bit more. And there's looking at Jeff again one more time. So he's on a crossbite posteriorly, etched edge on the anteriors, those lower anteriors, the lower centrals. You can see how they're uh, tipped lingually to begin with. So moving forward, here we are. We just, at this point, we align the lower anteriors, um, and we can have straight line access to do the interproximal reduction. Um, and then we got into refinement. I wanted to see the posterior teeth a bit better. Obviously, we still had a some premature contact on the anteriors, so we requested some uh, proclination of the upper anteriors, and we reinforced with full-time class three elastics, and here you see the elastics, bonded buttons on the lower threes, mesobuckle of the upper sixes, and modifying the aligners. And at this point, you can see how the teeth are, once we got rid of the premature contact on the upper anteriors, the posterior teeth sat quite nicely, and the improved, and the occlusion improved, and again, you can see the horizontal attachments on the upper anteriors to help with the extrusion of these teeth. And in the final case, um, check the occlusion, adjust the occlusion. Again, you see he doesn't have much of an anatomy on the, uh, especially on the lower molar region, but we managed to get contact on all the posterior teeth at this point sitting close to a class one relationship on the left and the canine. Um, still class three on the right-hand side, but we have no more premature contact. Obviously, adjusting the occlusion is a must at the end, um, and at this point, his teeth were sitting nicely. And he was given Vivera retainers um, to wear at nighttime, first starting off full-time uh, for about 12 weeks or three months, and then switching to nighttime forever. But lines are sitting on uh, nicely, and that's the before and after. And you can see how broadening the arch can help uh, correct the crossbite posteriorly, but also improve smile aesthetics. There's a smile with the midline sitting on. No more premature contact on the upper anteriors. Now let's look at another case, a very similar case. Again, um, the upper anteriors are in a crossbite or edge to edge. Lower anteriors are tipped lingually. Again, it's a main, my concern is um, if or when we do IPR on the lower anterior region, you don't want to simply use virtual seat chains and tuck them lingually, dump them more lingually. You want to make sure that you get lingual root torque. So this will give you a translation of the lower anteriors as you're closing the space. Now looking at the ClinCheck, right here. Again, so interproximal reduction, you notice that the sevens don't distalize. We start, I start an interproximal reduction mesial to the lower sixes, and this will allow me to distalize, but not into the ascending ramus region, rather simply to close the interproximal space at this point. And as we tuck them in, requesting lingual root torque, and you will see how these teeth 
um, simply translate, and the lower anterior region teeth will translate. Again, look at it from the anterior. There was uh, quite a bit of extrusion on the upper right canine as well. And uh, we didn't have to supplement with class 3 elastics. Just as an aside, a case like this, I may explain to the patient, we may need to supplement with triangular elastics simply to extrude that upper right canine. Um, it was not needed. The uh, aligners and the attachment did the job quite nicely. So interproximal, you can see how spaces are created first, interproximal reduction, and then tucking them in and expanding the upper arch. Again, um, just a quick summary of my ClinCheck notes. We had 26 upper and lower aligners, and the overcorrections are obviously for the uh, as the virtual seat chains. What I do is I would request uh, virtual seat chains anytime I request IPR. In the overcorrection, I may not always use them, obviously. If the interproximal contact is, is solid and strong, then I will just simply recycle those or just uh, discard the attach the aligners. Um, because if you do use them when the contacts are solid, they may cause either crowding in the lower anteriors or intrusion. Um, again, no distalization of the lower sevens. I may IPR from six to six. Um, and simply just retract the upper anteriors to create positive anterior overbite and overjet. And like I mentioned earlier, virtual seat chains to tighten the IPR contacts, but then request maybe three aligners of overcorrection. That's about the only time I would request overcorrection. Applying lingual root torque on the lower two to two as well. Um, in class three elastics at or after the IPR usually, uh, and in this case, um, class 3 elastics were worn from a liner 12 to 20. Again, I bonded buttons on the upper 6s and lower 3s. These, uh, these buttons are not of great aesthetic concern to the patient, so I'd rather use buttons in a class 3 case. And uh, there's looking at um, the initial malocclusion, sort of mid-treatment. And this is one of those points where the, the premature contact on the upper anteriors may become a little bit more evident during treatment. We explained to the patient that we are expecting that this is to happen as we're crossing the bite, and that if chewing the food, sometimes um, it may become uncomfortable. So we explained to the patient that if need be, um, she may or she may choose to keep the upper aligner on as she eats um, and take the lower aligner out. So that will help her chew her food nicely, and it will help splint the upper anteriors and make them somewhat comfortable. Um, some of our some of our patients may proceed to, to do it, and others say, you know, it's a temporary stage, we'll just leave, let it be, we'll just be careful as we chew our food. But it is something you can um, suggest to your patients, and normally you will need it for one or two aligners as we're jumping the bite. And that's how we finish the case. Again, on the right-hand side, we have a nicer class one relationship on the canines. On the left-hand side, we're still closer to a class three relationship, but there's certainly, certainly no more occlusal trauma. Um, we adjusted the occlusion on the anteriors as well, and she was tripoding on all her posterior teeth. So she had positive occlusal contact on the posterior teeth, light contact on the upper anteriors, and she was a lot more comfortable with her smile and her bite at this point. And that's the before and after. Again, after the IPR and the class three elastics as well. Um, 
and I just wanted to show to share these cases because they're more typical cases. Um, obviously, um, there's other factors to be considered. Sometimes there's, there's, there's a vertical issue. Um, canines need to be brought down for any reason. Extraction may be required. But these are typical class two and class three cases that I've treated non-surgically with the help of buttons and elastics. Um, certain times I may use TADS as well um, to help. Um, again, using class three elastics or class two elastics, whatever the case may be. Um, but a typical case uh, would be uh, to watch for um, lingual, applying lingual root torque on the lower anteriors as we do the IPR, delaying the IPR until straight line access is allowed, um, and distalization in the upper, again, sequential distalization if we're correcting more than a class two, uh, relate more than two millimeter class two relationship. Patient cooperation is just want to touch up on that um, one more time. You want to explain to the patient that class two or class three elastics will be needed. What I do in my office is I show them um, what these elastics look like. I do not overemphasize it, obviously, because if you do, then they think you're making a big deal out of it, and they are. They will make a big deal out of it. So you do want to mention it. Uh, you don't want them to be totally surprised when you come in with the elastics. You do want to mention it. And yet, I, I usually tend to explain to them that um, this is not something limited to Invisalign. Even if we were treating you with, with braces or any other appliance, these elastics will be necessary. So it's not a shortcoming of the system by any stretch of the imagination. So you do want to mention it. If you have some photos from your own patients you want to use, you can show them quickly what that looks like and explain to them that they, you want to, they want to wear the elastics every time they have the aligners on. However, if there's a big meeting um, or any other social events, it's okay to have these elastics taken out for a couple of hours. It's not the end of the world. Again, we're reinforcing anchorage. The elastics is, is, um, are not moving your teeth. It's the aligners that are moving the teeth. Um, uh, thank you all for listening. Um, if you have any questions, I'm, I'm happy at this point to answer any questions. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Your, your first question comes from the line of Brian Miller. Mm -hmm. Hi, Sam. Hi, Brian. Excellent presentation. Thank you, Brian. I have two questions. Uh, the, the term that you use, straight line axis, I haven't heard that before. Um, would you explain that, please? Sure. Straight line axis, what I do when I do interproximal reduction, if it's anything more than 0.2 millimeter, I like to use a straight handpiece and a perforated disc. Um, so I don't want to go around the curvature of the tooth. What I'd rather do is create space so the technician understands what straight line axis. In other words, if I go in with a disc, I want to make sure I'm cutting a straight line. If they're overlapping still, um, then I can't really go in with a disc. I have to use a perforated disc. And to get 0.3 or 0.4 millimeter to get a polishing strip, that takes a long time, and that's an unpleasant experience. So the, what, the, um, what the technician will do will either procline the teeth or simply just open up the contact just to allow me a straight line axis. Okay, so... <clears throat> Um, the, the second question, when you, when you were talking about um, virtual C chain on, on the class, the last class three case. Yes. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you said that you don't like to use. If you use virtual C chain, then you do something else. You over. You ask for overcorrection. I, yeah, I would. I would request of whenever I do interproximal reduction in the anterior region, and there's quite a bit in these cases, class two and three, class three cases. What I would 
request is virtual C-chain to overcorrect as well. However, when I get to the last aligner, I'll take my floss and check the, the interproximal contact. If the contact is tight enough, um, I will certainly not use the overcorrection aligners because what the overcorrection aligners are doing, they're squishing the teeth closer together. And if there is no interproximal space, what will happen is the teeth will either intrude or overlap. So it will be counterproductive to use the overcorrection aligners if these are virtual C-chains in cases that you've done interproximal reduction, but the interproximal contact is actually tight. I see. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, Sam. You're very welcome, Brian. Your next question comes from the line of Connie Grayley. Oh, hi, Sam. Um, as always, it's a pleasure to uh, hear you talk. It, it, you just do a great job explaining these things. Thank you very much. Um, in the class two cases, uh, do I hear you say that maybe in the lower buttons are more preferable than precision cuts, easier for the patient to use? That, that's exactly it. I find it a bit easier. Patients don't usually complain because aesthetics is a main concern, obviously. Right. And on the lower, the lower uh, molar region, aesthetics are not concerned at all. And what I, what, what I really started noticing what at one point I was going through my experimental stage, so to speak, and I placed uh, slits in the lower aligners, not only was the aligner not fitting well, they say well, if we laugh, if we yawn, that aligner is dislodged in the posterior region, which can be embarrassing. But the other thing is really good patients, good compliant patients will actually forget to wear the elastics because a slit in the aligner, there's nothing so to speak, bothering the patient, whereas mm -hmm. that button will rub and on the inside of the cheek, not enough to cause an ulcer, but enough to remind them um, to wear the elastic. So it's a great reminder, I find. And for that mm -hmm. reason, I like to use buttons uh, as opposed to slits on the lower arch. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Your next question comes from the line of Dale Stocking. Uh, good morning and a nice presentation. Thank you. Thank you. On the precision cuts, Previously, I used to have the gingiva raised on the mesial part of the molar so that I could add the cuts and not have to trim each individual. With the new ClinChecks and the precision cuts being able to be prescribed on the aligners, the last sets that I've gotten, the precision cuts on the molars are coming in in the mid position of the lower molar rather than on the mesial position. Is there a way of requesting the precision cut um, on the ClinCheck to be on the mesial of the lower molar? Good question. Unfortunately, you can't. Uh, simply because of the integrity of the aligner, if you bring it closer to the interproximal region, um, the, the aligner have a higher tendency to break in that region because there's less material in, the, in, in that region. However, if you notice, and what I've been doing is I use mini buttons, so you can still actually place them um, as mesial as you can. So it will be in the, almost in the middle of the mesial buckle if you use a mini button in there. You can still, what you have, what, what I like about these precision cuts is you place the aligner, the first set of aligners in, or the template, whatever the case may be. But if I place the first aligner, then I can place the button as opposed to the other way around. So once the aligner, the first aligner is in, or whichever, whichever point you decide to place the button, place the aligner in the mouth first, and then you can see how far mesial you can go with the buttons. And again, I use mini buttons because you never need to hook two elastics. It's only a single elastic, and these mini buttons are great for that. So place the aligner first, and then bond the button as mesial as you can. I find what works best. But unfortunately, because of the integrity of the aligner, you can't request it any more mesial than that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Your next question comes from the line of Kenneth Barton. 
Hi, Dr. Dar. Thank you so much for a beautiful presentation. I have one question. Sure. Uh, has Align Technology thought about putting the precision cuts for Class three cases uh, on the mesial or the cuspids rather than needing a button, the same way just turning the Class two upside down? Um, I'm not sure I follow that. Would you mind repeating that? I'm trying sure. to visualize sure. it. Sure. On a Class three case where you're wearing an elastic from the upper mower where you have a, a, a miniature button yes. and you wear it to a miniature button on the cuspid, yes. couldn't they put a precision cut there the same way you would do on the upper cuspid for a Class two result? Absolutely. You can. Yes, you can. Um, again, I choose to, to bond a button in there simply because I find that um, I don't want to have uh, – a vertical component of the elastic dislodging the aligner, although it's theoretical in the anterior region, it's not as important because it rarely ever dislodges in the anterior region. I simply place the button uh, just because I don't want to have any vertical component on the lower aligner at all. But yes, you can request it. And it can be requested. You can yes. put it in check. I appreciate it so much, and thank you again for a wonderful presentation. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Your next question comes from the line of Leonard Weiss. Hi, Sam. Hi, Leonard. Hi. I've got a question about um, root parallelism. Your, your superimpositions show beautiful bodily movement of your uh, bicuspids and molars. Yes. I wanted to know if there are any special instructions you give a line, or are you just uh, relying on the, um, the attachments? Yes. Um, these vertical attachments, I find, give me better root control. And one of the reasons why I request uh, individual to a distalization or sequential distalization is because I want to allow the, the, the teeth to distalize and control the root a bit more. And what I do is, especially when I'm distalizing the sevens, I, I tend to give five aligners at a time and see my patients at 10-week interval, except when I'm distalizing the sevens. I'll give three aligners at a time only. I want to keep a closer eye on them and see them at six weeks. It does happen sometimes that they come back after three aligners and that aligner is not fitting perfectly well. I may give them chewies, have them bite into it, sit in the reception area for 10 minutes and come back and see me, and have them wear it an extra week or so. Um, and all of that is, is not really for the crown. It's mostly for the root. So I find if you give the aligner, if the attachment is fitting very well, then the aligner will, will help you distalize the root quite nicely. And I've, and I've noticed that with extraction cases as well, um, and I've been getting very good root parallelism if the patient is compliant and if you make sure that the attachments are fitting very well in the aligner. Right. And um, you don't have a problem now with root velocity issues with the G3, correct? That's exactly it. I used to, I remember, I don't know if you remember, at one point linear movement with a clinch check was about 0.3 millimeters, right. and I used to request 0.25, but right now everything is set up 0.25. So you don't have to request any certain speed, but at 0.25, I'm getting very good results. If for any reason I need to slow it down, obviously we get some, some, sometimes uh, certain circumstances, patient is pregnant, what have you, and she really can't wear the aligners as often as you want them to. Well, the best way to slow it down is simply have them wear the aligners three weeks for a short period of time until um, you get over that hump. So you'll, they'll, they'll wear the aligners three weeks, and that actually slows down the movement if you think about it. Great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. There are no further audio questions at this time. Well, Dr. Dar, um, I just wanted to, first of all, remind everybody that uh, currently on the screen right now, there's a link at www.alignetechinstitute.com slash survey. So once you complete your survey, you'll have immediate access to your CE certificate, so please go there after the completion of the program. And if you experience any problems with viewing any of the presentation, the archive program will be available one week from today at alignetechinstitute.com. So now that we got that uh, housekeeping out of the way, I want to turn it over to our first text question. It comes from Ben Tran. How do you start class 2 elastics on patients with 
rotated upper threes. Do you wait after rotation is corrected or start at a liner eight? Good question. Um, if there are rotations on the canines or if sometimes the, the, the canine is uh, uh, pushed out buckily, I'll actually uh, bond button or put a slit on the aligner at the level of the four on the first bicuspid. Um, the reason for that is I want to have, I want to make sure that the plastic from the aligner is covering the canine completely. So I don't want to interfere by either adding a slit in the aligner or cutting out uh, a button. Um, so I'd, I'd, in that case, I'll place the button on the four, and I'll try my best to go in and bond the lower button on the seven as opposed to the six, because I don't necessarily want to wear short class two elastic. So in a case like that, I will bond it on the four. Great. Um, let's go to one more text question. It comes from James Stork. What size elastics are you using, size and force? Okay. I'm using 316, um, three and a half ounce uh, force. So that's about 100 grams of force. I know typically with, with fixed appliances we would use 200 grams of force, but I find 100 gram gives me good results. Um, again, especially we're distalizing with the aligner, where we're simply reinforcing anchors. So 3 sixteenths of an ounce, uh, three or three and a half ounces of force. Thank you. Hey, Debbie, I'm going to check back in with you. Do we have any audio questions in the queue? Again, to ask a question, please press star one. We have another text question coming from Shanghai 10. Do you step up overcorrection for class two correction to super class one or even class three-ish? If you see tooth movement lagging behind the ClinCheck setup, what would you do? Okay. Have you seen failures of distalization, i.e. class three corrections, even with very good class two elastics wearing? What are the factors preventing distalizations? Okay, um, David, uh, those are about four questions. Let me see <laughs> if I remember them all. The first question is, do I, do I request overcorrection? I, I do, I'll tell you what, if I'm doing sequential distalization, I'm relying on the elastics to sort of help me get beyond what I requested. So I will not request overcorrection per se, but if I do for any reason, I wouldn't call it overcorrection because then that will be put at the end as an overcorrection state. I will say, please distalize further to give me a slight class three, if need be. But I rarely need to do that because like I said, I'm doing sequential distalization, and the elastics are the icing on the cake. So if I may get a bit more, then I'm happy with that. And if I do request it, then I will not call it overcorrection. I'll simply call it uh, distalize into a slight class three. The next question is, what happens if things are lagging behind? Again, I will make sure that they're using the chewies. I think use the chewies, especially in distalization cases, is a must on the posterior teeth. So what I may do is have the patient wear, wear the aligners a little bit longer um, if need be. Um, and um, make sure that they're wearing the elastics full-time. Again, if, if, it, if it goes to a point where um, the aligners are not fitting anymore at that point, I will do mid-course correction, but you really need to do that. Just have the patients bite into the chewies, wear the, wear the aligners about three weeks as opposed to two. And again, I find from clinical experience, once the sevens, once the second molars go back, then everything will follow nicely. So if you struggle with anything, it's usually with the second bicuspid, or with the second uh, molar, excuse me. Now, was there an another question in there yeah, that I missed? More, you know, one more question. Have you seen failures of distalization, i.e. class two correction, even with very good class two elastics wearing? What are the factors that preventing distalization? Yeah, we, we do obviously, we just like with anything else in orthodontics, um, we do fall short of our goals sometimes. Tell you the truth, patient compliance is probably the number one reason. Distalization is not forgiven. What happens is as you distalize the seven, then you distalize the six and spaces open up in, in that region. If the patient stays without the aligner for 24 to 48 hours, you're gonna lose all of that almost overnight. Um, 
um, the system is not forgiven. But if the, tre- if the treatment is progressing nicely, there's no reason, again, once the sevens go back, then everything will usually follow nicely. If for any reason the attachments are not fitting well in the aligner, again, given the chewies haven't bite into the chewy, make sure the attachments are fitting well in there, um, and that usually helps with the distalization. If there is failure um, at that point, I would rely heavily on my class two elastics. I will go back and then check the pan, see if there's any reason why those sevens are not distalizing in the first place. But to get complete failure, um, I, you know, I have to tell you, I, I've fallen short of the goal sometimes, but to get complete failure, I haven't experienced that unless patients stop wearing the aligners completely. Debbie, I'm going to check back in with you to see if we have any audio questions in the queue. We do have two. The first one comes from the line of Louis Fronenberg. Hi, Louis. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yourself? Thank you. Thank you. I'm good. Good. Great presentation again. Thanks. Sam, one of the things that uh, I'm a little confused on is the use of optimized attachments or lack of optimized attachment, let's say, on the cusp is and putting in a precision um, cut. Yes. Uh, can you use a vertical um, attachment with a precision cut on the cuspid? Is yes, that you can, and permitted? that's exactly what I do. These, these optimized attachments are, the assumption is that the tooth will be covered with the plastic completely. So the force distribution is based on when it's, it's bench tested and, and, and com, uh, on a computer. Um, it's relying on, on the aligners uh, covering the tooth completely. So when part of it is removed either for a button cutout or for a slit, then you're not getting the same force. Um, whereas a vertical attachment, and I have been placing vertical attachment because these canines are long enough usually, um, then I, there, there is no issue. I've never had any issue. So if you get back your clinic check and you see an optimized attachment, but you want to use class two attachments, yeah. so you know, seeing that you start the uh, elastics on, let's say, on seven and eight, yeah. stage seven or eight, would you then initially allow for the optimized attachments and then ask them to remove it and replace it with a vertical attachment and then continue with your elastics? Sure, by, you can by placing. That's a good. That's a good way of doing it. You can certainly do that. Just delay uh, elastic placement for a bit until you get the most you can out of the optimized attachment first, be a rotation or a bit of extrusion, and then delay attachments. Maybe, uh, excuse me, elastics until a liner 10, 11, or 12, even, which gives you about 10 or 11 liners to correct the rotation or the extrusion. <clears throat> or the other thing is simply going to a vertical attachment right from the get-go or horizontal, whatever the case may be, whatever you like. Um, I've been, quite frankly, I've been going straight into the vertical attachment, but if need be, I would certainly, and I've already thought and entertained the idea of keeping, delaying that elastic placement until that canine is in a more ideal position. Right, now, here's a case. The, the cases that you, that you displayed didn't have this, but I had one case where I had uh, bilateral um, crossbites. It was a class two, mm-hmm. bilateral crossbites. So would you start to this, and with crowding in the upper arch. So would you initiate it with expansion first and then move into distalization, sequential distalization, or how would you, uh, how would you attack that, that situation? I, w- I would actually do the distalization and the expansion at the same time. I find once, once these teeth are... Um, the cells on the periodontal ligament are stimulated with the distalization, then I find the expansion um, occurs nicely. And the other thing is you you cut down on treatment time by distalizing and expanding at the same time. Um, And I I did toy with that a couple of years ago to see which one works. They will both work nicely. I just find that you cut down on the number of aligners and probably get 
faster results, not necessarily better results, but faster results if you do them simultaneously. Again, if you're distalizing, uh, let's say, a quarter of a millimeter, and then you're expanding a quarter of a millimeter, that's certainly a movement that the aligner can handle. Great. Thank you. You're very welcome, Louis. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. Your next question comes from the line of Anne Cossawan. Uh, Dr. Deha, um, excellent presentation. As always, I think um, you've contributed so much to um, our profession and the use of this line. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I, uh, I wondered if you ever you had used um, uh, the CAVO handpiece, which is um, an, like an advanced version of the old dome stripper handpiece. Um, it has high speed with a water spray. Um, um, you, you're not going to believe this. The, the pamphlet is sitting on my desk, and I've been actually um, looking at this and considering this as well. Um, we're all creatures of habit. My, the discs have been working well, but I'm seriously considering this uh, simply because of the water, quite frankly. Um, so, yes, I have been considering it, and you know what? If, if or when I try it, I'd, I'd love to give you some feedback as well. Maybe next time I'll, I will mention that as well. Okay. Have you tried uh, it? Are you happy yeah, with it? Yeah, I've been using it. Um, it's happened that the rep from GAC brought it in um, <laughs> even before Invisalign, and um, uh, what I liked about it was that um, I felt like I had a, a little more control on the disc, uh, and it had... Um, Several gradations plus, um, as you said, the, the water spray, um, and um, it. Uh, all the only problem is, you know, there's some vibration, you know, with it. But um, I usually put uh, separators in first. Perfect, and that's a good idea. Placing separators in there that will open up the contact space. And uh, early on, I used to do that as well. These separators are great. Um, but now what I do, because I'm delaying, and this goes back to the question earlier, why do you request a straight line access? Um, well, that would delay the IPR until we have a straight line access, and then the cable handpiece can be used. And one of the other advantages I find of delaying, I will never, ever, ever do IPR as of a liner one, because the teeth are still sitting solid within the periodontal ligament. The periodontal ligament space has not widened yet, so these teeth are solid. So an interproximal reduction, even with a polishing strip, will be extremely uncomfortable. Whereas if you wait until at least a couple of liners, then you'll find that the periodontal ligament has widened. The teeth are somewhat mobile, which makes it a little bit more forgiving, and that will naturally loosen the contact in between the teeth. So this is even um, more reason to request or not, you know, wait until you have straight line access, which is usually built into the G3 right now. Thank so you for that. Is that one of your preferences? You put that in as a preference or you... you That's you a good question. That? I used to and I removed it. Anything that may interfere with G3 or anything that is already built into the G3, I took out of my preferences, uh, my preferences. And this was one of those that I actually removed, but it was for the longest time. Please allow straight line access before IPR. Again, there's no need for it now. It's built right into the software right now. And you mentioned the Bavera retainers. Is that um, a common usage for most of your patients? Are you using that? Um, yes. In a large percent? Yes. What I do is, and, and, and again, with, I'm sure like most of my colleagues listening in, um, do you charge more for that? Do you not? So what, what, what I like about the Viveras is, number one, you get four retainers. So it's cutting down on my lap time quite a bit. And the other thing, quite frankly, like most of my peers listening, if not all of them, if a patient loses or cracks a retainer within six months, we all feel guilty 
and we foot the bill and we have a new retainer made. Whereas if it's made by a line technology, you simply turn to the patient and say, I'll be happy to order one for you. And what I do in my office is I pass uh, on the, uh, the cost from a line only. So I will not charge for my time or my material. I'll simply pass it along. So with Vivera retainers, I'll, I'll give them the option of, of getting whatever it is, 275 for eight retainers, which is a great deal. I'll say, I'll take it on the tin when it comes to time and material but you will pay a light technology. And I find this has been working well because now we don't have to deal with the patient coming in. I lost my retainer just before the weekend. I better hurry up, take an impression, send it in and get the retainer back. Well, now they have a backup. And the other thing is if some of these, some of our patients, uh, young adults are studying elsewhere in a different city and they lost a retainer, they don't have to rush and get a, uh, an impression taken by another orthodontist. So simply call a line uh, tech and I'll, I'll just order a retainer and have it shipped to them or have a family member pick it up and ship it to them as well. Uh, but it is, I, I do request it to all my patients and um, almost, almost all of them will actually uh, choose that option. Um, and one last question. On the simpler case, um, I practice in Manhattan, so one of my patients is a comedian, and uh, of course, for his pictures, um, at first I had to take all the attachments off because um, I guess I didn't make it clear enough to him that how visible they were going to be. Hmm. And then he requested some, uh, the lower ones um, on the lingual, um, and fortunately, Invisalign accommodated me by, well, there was a fee for it, but he was okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever, um, his was a moderate type case, have you? ever done them on the lingual for patients? Uh, you mean uh, the attachments? Yeah. Um, no, we, I have quite a few actually actors in, in my practice and what I do is um, I would place the attachment, I'll explain to them, I'm not going to place anything on the upper anteriors, three to three, so I'll, I'll place them from the bicuspid on. So I may make an exception and when I'm distalizing place attachments on the fours and the six or even four, six, and seven if need be. And if they have a big addition coming up, I may remove the fours. I may remove them from the first bicuspid. I know for a fact no one will see them on the second bicuspid and first molar. And then I use that erase, what we call the dimple forming plier, has a counterpart which is called the eraser, and I'll just flatten the attachment for that one aligner. But usually upper three to three is what their main concern. Again, on the lower region, um, when you rarely get to see those. So I did place them, uh, I can, uh, and I did request using them in the lingual before, but you know what I found? It does interfere a bit with their tongue um, and does interfere with their speech. So between the two, they'd rather not have any interference with the speech, quite frankly. Um, so upper three to three, and, and if I need to remove the fours, then I'll do it temporarily for a couple of aligners. I hope that helps. Great. Well, thank you very much. You're Great very there are no further audio questions at this time. Well, Dr. Dar, we have a, a few more text questions. So the next one comes from David Sabansky. Do you always recommend sequential distalization? When, in, when is it recommended to do a jump, and is that the same as a surgical jump? Um, good. It's uh, For all intents and purposes, an elastic jump is very similar to, to a surgical jump. I, I call it an elastic jump, uh, but you know, technically it's the same as a surgical jump. If, if that... If I'm just, if the class two is about a millimeter or so, it's not that far off on an adult, then I will request um, an elastic jump, a millimeter correction, a, a distalization of one millimeter or so. Um, on a growing child and on a growing teenager, I may actually accept up to two millimeters 
of uh, distalization by elastic jump. Um, just because we have growth on our side, I find class two elastics may give us up to two millimeters of class two correction. So on an adult that, has, that requires two millimeters distalization or more, I'll do sequential distalization. On a growing child that requires two and a half or more, then I will do sequential distalization. Um, what it is, is you're relying completely on the patient cooperation and compliance when it comes to that. Again, it's not that the, um, the jump won't occur, it's just you want to make sure that your patients understand and appreciate the importance of the elastics. So one millimeter or so, I'm comfortable doing class two elastic jump. Um, more than that, I may tend to use sequential distalization. Okay, we have another question from Sanjivan Mahara. What do you mean to wear passive aligner while on elastics? Okay, um, good question. When we're distalizing, and you've seen most of our cases, as we distalize on the upper arch, we may get up to 30, 40, 50 aligners in the upper arch because we're doing sequential distalization. And the lower arch may not require much, maybe leveling the curve of P and some minor rotation, 10 to 15 aligners. So you end up with 50 aligners on top and maybe 15 aligners on the lower. What I've seen, because my practice is exclusively Invisalign, you sort of tend to learn from our patients. And some of our patients, we simply keep wearing the upper aligner. Uh, we have a bonded button on the lower arch, on the lower sixes. They will wear the elastics with the upper aligner, but no lower aligner. And then when they get home at night, they'll just wear the lower aligner, the last lower aligner, which they consider is a retainer, and then move on. Um, so you want to, instead of going through the explanation every single time, you simply just hand them those passive aligners. Um, when, when patients are wearing elastics with, with buttons bonded on the lower sixes, that will cause protraction, maybe even a mesial end rotation of the lower sixes, and will apply as the, the, the molars are tipping in mesially, you'll get crowding on the lower anterior region. So that lower arch has to be splinted with something. And those passive aligners, what they do is they're a duplicate of the last aligner, so they're not actually moving your teeth. They're splinting them, but preventing crowding and proclination of the lower anterior, preventing uh, mesial, out, uh, mesial in or distal out rotation of, uh, rotation of the lower sixes. Um, obviously, the alternative will be to, to bond um, a lingual arch uh, with bands on the sixes and, and hooks for elastics but then that becomes just a little bit more complicated and unnecessary. So these elastics simply, the, excuse me, these passive aligners splint the arch, prevent crowding in the lower anterior region, prevent proclination of the lower anteriors as the elastic is being, uh, as the elastic force applies to the six and then translates forward in the arch. I hope that helps. I've got one more text question. It's from uh, Kenyu Takamoto. When you distalize molars, do you still place vertical attachments on the buckle? Yes, uh, vertical attachments on the buckle, exactly. I, there was a few cases where I tried some on the lingual. I find it to be unnecessary. So uh, vertical attachments on the buckles, the six, the four, and the three generally, or seven, five, and three. Debbie, I'm gonna check in with you for any other questions that might be on the queue as far as audio. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1. No, Dr. Dar, we're just a few minutes from the end of the program, so we're going to go ahead and, and close out the program for today. A couple of quick reminders. Please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take your survey and to get your CE certificate. One week from today, this entire program will be archived at linetechinstitute.com. Again, I want to thank Dr. Dar again for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us and we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert program. 
Thank you very much. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. Thank you all. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Presenters, please hold.